Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. From KQED. The year was 2019, and today's question asker, Andrew Thomas of El Sobrante, was running in beta breakers for the very first time. That's the annual race across San Francisco. The person I was kind of next to lined up next to uh, at the start of the race got completely nude with no shoes on. And I was like, oh, I'm going to smoke this person. Think again, Andrew. And they took off and I couldn't even keep up with them for a quarter mile. And they just, yeah, did really well. Welcome to Beta Breakers, perhaps the only foot race in America where you can get beaten by a naked person, someone wearing a banana costume and a gaggle of 15 runners who are literally tied together. I speak from experience because that's exactly what happened to me one year, and I've still got questions for that naked person about chafing. Anyway, running in the race got Andrew thinking. Um, I just want to know more about the history of beta breakers. When did it get so wacky? When did costumes start getting introduced? You know, there's many races all over the country. Why, why did this one get so uh, uniquely San Franciscan? Today on Bay Curious, we're delving into the long history of San Francisco's Bay to Breakers race. It's a unique piece of San Francisco's culture that's been through some highs and lows over the decades. I'm Olivia Allen-Price. We'll get to it just after this. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. We recruited KQED's Azul Dolstrom Ekman to answer Andrew's question about how the Beta Breakers foot race came to be the zany street party it is today. Beta Breakers began as a response to one of the most devastating days in San Francisco history. After the 1906 earthquake, a sports editor from a newspaper called the San Francisco Bulletin had the idea of holding a running race across the city to boost morale. They called it the Cross City Race and held it on New Year's Day, 1912. This is the race that would eventually become known as Beta Breakers. The routes changed through the years, but it's always started by the bay, near the ferry building, and ended at the Great Highway by the ocean, aka the Breakers. It's a roughly seven and a half mile trek. This is what it sounded like when KPIX Channel 5 covered the 75th anniversary in 1986. It's been through two world wars and years when attendance was as low as 15 people. 
three hours before start time, and already hundreds of the more serious runners have gathered in the cold to secure their place in the pack with hopes of record time. For many, it's a serious race. But what makes Beta Breakers really unique is that it's also a party. Nowadays, people describe it as a mix of Mardi Gras, Boston Marathon, Pride, and Halloween. And as the human wall starts to form, thousands more of the run-for-fun types awaken the city with their festive mood, ready to join the world's largest moving block party. At the start line, for some reason, you'll see people throwing tortillas around like frisbees. People run in groups connected by a bungee cord in the centipede category. Some people run naked. Other people, dressed like salmon, run the course backwards, like a salmon swimming upstream. So while some try to get to the ocean as fast as they can, other people take their time, or don't even make it at all. Well, we're almost a half hour into this race. The great runners are almost finished. I'm at the starting line. These people haven't even started yet. The first mention of someone running the race in a costume comes in 1940. Someone dressed up as Captain Kidd, a famous Scottish privateer, and tried to enter the race, but was denied by officials. They ended up walking two blocks down Market Street and starting the race anyway, running it holding a pirate sword and finishing last. That year, another person also joined the race somewhere on Market Street after taking a $5 bet that they wouldn't run down the city's main thoroughfare dressed only in their nightshirt. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when costumes, nudity, and whatever else became a thing. But by 1975, accounts describe a carnival atmosphere developing, with people dressed as clowns, horses, cowboys, and riverboat gamblers. Drag queens ran the race in heels. Women ran shirtless. Then the centipede started. To qualify, the centipede has to have 13 runners, and the body has to be 60 feet long. Twinkie feelers are supposed to be on the head of each individual segment. The UC Davis Aggies Running Club ran as a centipede for the first time in 1978. The centipedes are basically a train of 13 to 15 runners connected by a bungee cord. Some centipedes go for speed. Others take a more artistic approach. Take this centipede from 1986, dressed as a train of tissue boxes. We call ourselves the runny noses. The runny noses? Yes, with a sense of direction. Angie Longworth is a member of the Impala Racing Team, a San Francisco-based women's running club that's raced since 1979, and by all accounts, has the current women's course record for the centipede. The first time I did the centipede, we were dressed up as Wonder Woman, and, and people would be running by us, and they were just so excited to see that costume, and, and it was like, Wonder Woman, this is my dream come true! <laughs> Women weren't allowed to officially run in Beta Breakers until 1971, although many did disguised as men. The earliest recorded instance of that happening was in 1940. It's still a tradition for the men's centipede to try to beat the fastest women's individual runner. That produced some cringeworthy promotional material from back in the day. In the past seven years, the Aggies have run rampant in the Beta Breakers, beating centipedes, embarrassing lead women, and taunting world-class athletes like little Joni Benoit. Impala racer Nelda Williams says that kind of misogyny was normalized and rampant in that era. But she's okay with men's centipedes still trying to beat the women, because it acknowledges that that's no easy feat. It's not just about being women, it's about just being athletes and just being purely competitive in that way. Of course, it's always fun, too. I mean, this has got to be fun if we wouldn't do it. 
fun because you never know what the Beta Breakers course will throw at you. Here's Angie again. A teammate and I were running together in the front, and there were these two naked men and just in front of us, and we like we could not go around them, and they were just so it was like nah. The team uses the theme of strong women to dress up every year, picking costumes like Mrs. Incredible, RBG, or the Statue of Liberty. Nelda recalls when the group dressed up as former San Francisco mayor, Diane Feinstein. We had uh, her, her face on a stick. We had skirts on, white blouses, a big red bow tie. And we were shaking hands with people, running down the street like we were politicians. And yep. they were booing us. Booing, likely because in 1977, Feinstein, then a city supervisor, called the race out of control after an unofficial runner collapsed and died, despite a quick medical response. Ultimately, a proposed resolution from Feinstein to investigate race procedures was vetoed by then-Mayor George Moscone. Beta Breakers was entering its heyday enjoying widespread popularity and fierce competition from some of the greatest legends in the running world, like the winner of the first-ever women's Olympic marathon, Joan Benoit Samuelson, and Norwegian Greta Weitz, who won the New York City Marathon nine times. Okay, Wade, we're about two and a half miles up as we made the climb into the Hay Street Hill. Greta and Joan were running side by side, but they're having difficulty in the crowd here. Joan has had to drop behind about a yard. But as popularity increased, there was also a sense that things were getting out of control. By 2009, the race and city leaders banned alcohol and unsuccessfully tried to ban nudity. Then-Mayor Gavin Newsom complained that the race failed to clean up after itself, leaving behind 35 tons of trash one year. In 2012, a participant died after getting into a fight at the race. And in 2013, another man died when he fell off a roof at a house party. That same year, another person is believed to have jumped into the ocean and drowned after finishing the race. People in the neighborhoods next to Golden Gate Park complained of trash and lots of public urination. It's hard to be enthusiastic about something when it results on people peeing on your door, but it's really easy to prevent that, and the race organizers do a good job of that most years. Jason Cawthon is a member of the North of Panhandle Neighborhood Association Board. It's a neighborhood right near the Panhandle of Golden Gate Park. He says things have gotten a lot better since those times. Um, the years when the neighbors have had the most complaints and when it's been the biggest problem for the neighborhood is years when the race organizers have scaled back the number of porta potties. Balancing the needs of racers, partiers, spectators, neighbors, and everyone else in the city is Kyle Myers, who owns Silverback, the company that runs Beta Breakers. He says this year's event had around 18,000 paid participants, with another 30 or 40,000 just joining in for the fun. And that means a lot of porta potties. Just shy of 900, wow, which yeah. is a substantial amount for a race that's only, you know, seven miles long. He says putting on the event means interacting with just about every department in the city. You know, from the mayor's office to SFMTA, to Rec and Park, SFDPW, Entertainment Commission, uh, you name it. We, we kind of touch them all. Despite the challenges of putting on such a big event, which can enrage locals because of the crowds and traffic it makes, he says it's their flagship event. Um, and, you know, why some locals either lock themselves up or get out of town that weekend. I think deep down everybody appreciates what it is for this city and what it means, um, you know, to be one of the longest standing races in the world. 
Beta Breakers has survived two world wars, near zero participation, the scrutiny of politicians, and even the COVID-19 pandemic. It has its detractors, but Jason Cawthon of the NOPA Neighborhood Association says it's an important event to protect. Beta Breakers is a super unique event because it is combines this you know, aspect of celebration with the aspect of running race. I think in expressing whimsy and celebrating and have a good time with your community and having that tie to a fitness goal and, and activity, I think is a very San Francisco thing. Coming out of the pandemic, race attendance is much less than it was at its peak. And the race doesn't attract the same elite runners it once did. As Beta Breakers continues well past its 100th birthday, Jason says it's important for people to recognize that this is both a race and a party. And I think when it's in most danger, or at least in, at risk, is when people don't understand that it's those two things together. And when it's treated as purely a running race or when it's treated as purely a festival, I think that's when it's at the greatest risk or it has the greatest problems. From the ashes of the earthquake, through the summer of love, through highs and lows, Beta Breakers has become a true San Francisco event. And that's enough of a reason on its own to get dressed up. That was KQED's Azul Dahlstrom Ekman. Big thanks to Andrew Thomas for asking the question. If you've got one, head over to baycurious.org. We've been having a total blast on the Bay Curious book tour, and I hope that you can join us at one of our upcoming events. On June 1st, I'll be at Bookshop West Portal in San Francisco, and I can't wait to get out to that part of the city. On June 4th, I'll be at the Napa County Library for an event hosted by the Napa Book Mine. KQD Forum's Mina Kim, a Napa resident herself, will be joining me for that one, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Both events are free, though some do require registration. Find all the details and more events at kqed.org slash baycuriousbook. We'll pop that link in our show notes, too. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Our show is produced by Amanda Font, Christopher Beal, Brendan Willard, and me, Olivia Allen-Price. Special thanks this week to producer Pauline Bartoloni. I hope you have a wonderful week. I mean, this has got to be fun if we wouldn't do it. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.